I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. Hi, I'm Ricky Lake. I'm Dr. Aaron Eugwin McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safriz, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Well, back by popular demand, my guest on this episode of the podcast is Charles Eisenstein, who has become a dear friend of mine. I first found Charles's work like years ago, like maybe college, when Ascent for Humanity and Sacred Economics, I don't remember which one it was, I think it was Ascent, Ascent of Humanity. I read that, it was right after Semester at Sea, which is like a cruise you take around the world, a study abroad trip. I found his work and I was like, whoa, this gifting economy thing is really, really neat. And then I ended up at Burning Man later, and there is a, a sort of practical application of a gifting economy. And, you know, I was reminded of his work and kind of just dabbled in what he was, you know, putting out there over the years. And then bam, COVID happened. We had a baby right in the beginning of 2020. And somebody, I think Marin Green, my friend and midwife colleague, she sent me a copy of an essay titled The Coronation. I didn't even look at the author's name, but I read it. And it was like, holy smokes. This is somebody who's very thoughtful about this. And that was in, I think, March, maybe, March of 2020 that he wrote that. He'll probably correct me and, you know, later when he hears this. But regardless, it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And he kept writing. He, he could, it seemed like almost like this guy could not get a, a night's rest without thinking up an, an, another incredible, thoughtful piece about what was happening in the world around the time and throughout the onset and um, aftermath of this viral pandemic. So he put all of these essays together into an amazing new book and sent me a copy to pre-screen it. And I, I said, Charles, when this is ready, when you're ready, let's do an interview. And that's the interview that you're about to hear. So his new book, he's got a bunch of great books, guys. You should just go and buy them all. Go like put $50 aside and go and just go to town on his website. Title of this book is The Coronation, Essays from the COVID Moment. And I think this is critical. This is critical listening for anybody out there who's thoughtful about the world. Because one thing that stuck out from his coronation essay was, if you could have 10 years more of, of a, tr a fully liberated life where you can love and dance and honor planet Earth in the way that you've always dreamt of, or if you could be locked away in your home not see any faces, not have any more um, one-night stands or dinner parties or Christmas where everybody's opening gifts around one another and hugging and rejoicing and drinking ouzo and Greek dancing in the garage. If you could have no more of that, but you're going to live for 50 more years. Think about that question. So he, he posed this in the coronation and he really, uh, his gift, Charles's gift is putting words with meaning behind conceptually challenging social issues, which is why I, I think he's one of the greatest thinkers and greatest social philosophers of our time. So 
keep your answer to that question in mind. And then approach this interview with a grain of humility. And bear in mind that when a person writes the way that Charles writes, he's not asking for your permission to write this way. If you're feeling confronted by it, it's probably because there's a grain of truth in something he's saying. And if you ever met, if you have the privilege of meeting Charles one day in person, you'll realize how beautiful of a human this is. He genuinely wants the best for you and for everybody you've ever loved. And that's a rare luxury nowadays in a human. So before we get into the interview, I've got to mention my sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Fit for Birth. One sponsor of this episode. Fit for Birth is a company started by James Goodlatte. And through their online programs and training programs, you, will, you can either A, sign up to find one-on-one coaching on nutrition, exercise through pregnancy, postpartum, and the rest of, of the cycles and transitions in a woman's life. You can go to the website. You can sign up for one-on-one training on those modalities. But there's even more. If you're a check practitioner, a holistic lifestyle coach, if you are a, and James, James Goodlatte, the owner of Fit for Birth, by the way, is a very advanced check practitioner. He's been doing this check programming since it was like a VHS program, just to give you an idea as to how deep this guy has gone into his, his practice and his um, thoughtfulness about training pregnant and postpartum women. So if you're a coach, a doctor, anything, if you have women who are coming to you and asking for even a little hint of some advice around nutrition and exercise and pregnancy, James also has programs on that for you. So that deepens your toolbox, allows you to care for people in a truly holistic, comprehensive way. If you want to check out Fit for Birth, go to getfitforbirth.com, all spelled out, slash beloved, getfitforbirth.com slash beloved, and you'll be able to find links there that'll save you 20% on anything that James and his team has to offer. Can't recommend them enough, guys. Please support James and Fit for Birth because they have kept this engine going. And with their support, I've been able to to do um, some really remarkable things with this podcast. So thank you to you guys out there listening, especially if you can support them. And thank you to James and the team at Fit for Birth for uh, piggybacking on this journey with me. All right, everybody. Without further ado, my conversation with the one and only Charles Eisenstein. All right, welcome. Welcome back, Charles, to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about your new book, The Coronation, or the, uh, yeah, The Coronation, which is, carries the namesake of the essay that actually got me reinvigorated by your work. And if anybody out there is guessing, yes, we're going to be talking about this COVID moment, which is actually the subtitle of the book. So why don't you just quickly introduce the new book that you wrote, which is one of many. Uh, I don't have to fluff you up any more than I already have. You, you've, you're an incredible writer. So tell us just quickly about the book that we're going to be kind of diving into a little bit today. It, it's basically a collection of my essays from 2020 and 2021, starting with, the, well, actually starting with an essay I wrote in 2016 called Zika and the Mentality of Control, Yeah, yeah. Um, which was like, I mean, not, not to flatter myself, but it was pretty prescient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then also I have um, uh, some new material in the book, uh, prologue, epilogue, mm-hmm. and many intros to each essay that kind of place it in a in in my own psychological trajectory. Like, what was I thinking when I wrote that essay? Yeah. What was the response? You know, just to kind of weave it together into an arc. 
that also mirrors the social arc that sure. we all have been through. Sure. So that's pretty much what the book is. I think what's what's really special. So you sent me a, a pre-release manuscript, and what I found really interesting is that you can tell that your mind you're very thoughtful about this thing the whole way through. And you're willing to admit that maybe we need to give a little here and take a little over here. And, and that's kind of, I think, the, I think that's the reason that, that your work resonates with so many people is that you're willing to kind of bob and weave as more information becomes available. Having said all of that, you're right. It was quite prescient from the very beginning, especially with when you look at the Zika essay and then you, and then you read immediately afterwards the coronation which again is, I think that was what, February, March of 2020, like right as the pandemic yeah. was happening. March. It was, it was, yeah, I wrote that in March. Yeah. And I, I remember reading it a couple weeks after we had our first daughter. So our first daughter was born in late February. And when you read the, when I read the essay, the, the big standout thing from that was, okay, what if this is really, really bad? If so, what are we willing to compromise in order to carry forward? Are we willing to compromise total richness in life, even if this is the worst thing we've ever seen, are we willing to compromise richness in life? Or would we prefer richness and less time, so to speak, if this is the arbiter of longevity, this single virus that has emerged? And so it starts with that. And then there's this, this kind of dance throughout the essays, whereby I think you're really reconciling the, with the fact that even some of the best thinkers, the greatest thinkers in your life have started to push back against your work and have actually distanced themselves in a, in a very confronting way. So just before we started recording, we were talking about how it was kind of surprising how this actually didn't end up being a very clear split you know, delineation between red and blue, which is what we're normally used to seeing. In fact, a lot of people who maybe were very blue started thinking, you know, I, I'm using these red and blue terms very vaguely now because I'm not even sure what they exactly mean any longer. I certainly yeah, used to plus, be. Yeah, plus when you mix in the red pill and the blue pill aspect, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah, right. You get this this purple, this purple something, this amalgamation of ideas where that's where you and I sort of live. So so did you, uh, maybe you can kind of relate as you were writing about this mm-hmm. and standing in your integrity. I'm guessing you had some people very well known in the wellness community, you don't have to name them if you don't want, but but tell me about what that was like. You're you're losing friends, you're losing allies, perhaps over this single issue. What what I was hoping would happen is that all of my friends and allies would see it the way I saw it. That's what <laughs> we all hope would, for. <laughs> yeah, and it would actually like strengthen our community. Yeah, you know, and and the relationships that I've been building over the last ten years uh, as a whatever I am, a philosopher. Uh, they would finally be kicked into action. Yeah. But instead, so many of my friends and allies just like defected to the orthodoxy. Yeah. And you'd think that after, I mean, every community that I'm involved in, like, for example, the psychedelic community, I mean, you'd think that they would have at least some skepticism about the very agencies that have persecuted them for the last 40 years. Nope. They just <laughs> accept the science, yeah, you know, yeah. or communities that people, people who like in the old, like acupuncture world, alternative health, again, who have been um, dismissed and persecuted and ridiculed. They also, you know, classic Stockholm syndrome sided with absolutely cap- captors yeah. or not to mention, you know, the, the liberal and progressive uh, political 
people. I mean, so it, it, it definitely was a huge realignment and caused a lot of strange bedfellows mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. hop into bed together. So, uh, yeah. 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 And it's, it still hasn't fully settled. I, I, I feel. Well, yeah. I mean, it, from the very beginning, my wife was like, you know, my wife and I, we were very discerning, you know, maybe this is something we really should be worried about. We, we took it very yeah. seriously in the very beginning, but very quickly in maybe, I don't know, six months in or so, not even six months in, it didn't take that long, but it was not that we're competing here, but it was like, let's just take every person's opinion and let's really make a decision for ourselves. That's actually what everybody should do. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, that that's the ideal that we're all critically thinking about what, what is best for us in our community. But as we saw this thing emerging, yeah, there was these, this, um, this sort of fracturing where we real we, we realized that it's finding ourselves in a new city. There was, there were people that were, I'll give one example. Um, and this is a person I've, I've talked to you about, but I had sat with this person through a horrible decision to make a second trimester, um, have a second trimester abortion due to some really, really nasty stuff that was found on prenatal ultrasound, like no brain limb deformities. Like there was clearly a chromosomal issue here. And this person had to make this hard decision to have a second trimester abortion, which no woman wants to have, but this was an incompatibility with life. So we sat, we cried together. Our, our, these two couples, my wife and this other couple, we sat and just sobbed together and mourned together. And that was just about six months before this whole thing happened. And now, bam, all of a sudden I am now, uh, I am now sacrilegiously operating outside of my scope based on the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath, which says to do no harm. How could I possibly recommend that somebody be thoughtful about the vaccine, become, make them hesitant about the vaccine? That, that seems to them inextricably linked with, with the, the evil in the world, mm-hmm. you know? And all that I was merely trying to do is, can we wait and see what information emerges before we can start to do, to do this, you know, to make some really hard decisions. Like, do we vaccinate a pregnant woman like my wife? Do we vaccinate our little kids? And that was not really happening. So the fact that we was, that I was even speaking as a healthcare professional in providing risks, benefits, alternatives, which is my job, I was seeing this pushback and, and, you know, how, how could Mm -hmm. you possibly make somebody hesitant about this? So this didn't, this was not a, a place where critical thinking was allowed. And, and to boot, I want to add on to you, you know, when we started to have people that were distancing themselves from us and we felt very lonely at times, there were, there were moments when I sort of questioned, what, am I wrong here? Am I on totally the wrong path? Like, maybe I'm making a horrible mistake here. Did you ever feel that pressure? I mean, was there ever times oh, yeah. where you were like, I need to reassess this. Maybe I'm missing something. Oh, I went through deep periods of self-questioning. I mean, I, I, there was an entire span of eight months where I wrote nothing on covid because I was like, how, how can I be sure that my critics aren't right, that yeah. I'm actually causing thousands of deaths right. through right. my work? Right. Like, I have to know that. I have to know where my, where my beliefs are actually coming from. Yeah. And my, my initial impulse, though, even before it really started, like when it was just getting in the news, I was uh, holding a retreat at Esalen, where I am no longer apparently welcome, but, um, Esalen of all places. I mean, the history yeah. of Esalen, how, how it's unfathomable. <laughs> yeah. People that were like, what's going on, Charles? And I yeah. said, it's a hysteria. 
Now, I didn't necessarily think it was only an hysteria, but it, whatever else it was, it was definitely hysteria. And that comes up again and again in the book as well. Now, what exactly is a hysteria, though? Yeah. We kind of have an intuitive feeling of what it is. That's a loaded actually, term in my world as well, in women's health. Yeah, because it comes from, from right, hysterectomy. Yeah, like the, the, the uterus. Room, like uh -huh. this, this feminine insanity, right? Right, right. So you actually um, hit on it in, in, the story, in the story you just shared when you were associated with evil. Yeah. One of the key social forces that has played out over the last couple of years is this pattern of, you know, here we are in a society that is under intense stress, that isn't working, that's degenerating, where our generation is less well off than our parents' generation, yeah. uh, where chronic disease has skyrocketed, uh, social illnesses, um, environmental degradation. We are in crisis. Yeah. And we don't know what to blame. All of a sudden, a virus comes along that we get to then associate with evil, where we get to, to channel all of our inchoate fears onto something identifiable. Right. And that provides a kind of a psychological relief. Mm. It's an enemy. I mean, the, this is well known by, by dictators and tyrants throughout history. If you want to unify the population and quell social tensions you need an external enemy the external enemy usually it's a, you know a, it's in the context of a war but it's it, but but it doesn't have to be right. it could be a virus and in fact war terminology and war thinking are then applied to a virus yeah the other thing that happens in in every historical instance of this unification of the population against external evil is that there's also an internal evil that mirrors the external. The internal mm. evil is the fifth column. It's the traitors in our midst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is what th this social patterning is so deep and it goes beyond. I mean, if you know, as part of the, the COVID dissent community, dissident community, like I'm aware of all of the stuff about, you know, the corruption of the pharmaceutical industry, the regulatory capture, the scientific malfeasance, uh, the manipulated data, the censorship. I mean, I, I'm aware of all that stuff and I think it's important, but there is a much deeper pattern that is operating here. Yeah. And that is that's what's kind of my job to illuminate you know the the stuff about uh adverse events you know and and the the manipulation of research on masks and all that like that's somebody else's job i'm aware of it but my job is to ask like why were we so susceptible right. to this propaganda in the first place right and part of it is the pattern of that that we just kind of readily accept of find the bad guy Find something to control. I mean, this is this is also the so-called germ theory of disease. When you refute the germ theory of disease, that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as a germ or that germs don't play a role in disease. But you're not focusing on the evil 
and gearing all of your medical responses toward killing something. Right. Or excluding something, ostracizing something. I mean, this is what you and I have experienced. Yeah, yeah. So this, this is the pattern that's at work. And it is like, it's almost instinctive in human beings to find, okay, who is the in-group, who is the out-group? Right. And if I associate with somebody in the out-group, that's like, you know, being friends with the weird kid in fourth grade. Now you, you're, you're, you have cooties. Yeah. If you touch, you know, Kent, that was the name of the weird kid in my class. (laughs) Poor Kent. Kent. Yeah. And it's, it seemed like, there was it seemed like there was a conspiracy against Kent. It yeah. seemed like somebody sent a memo to everybody in the class saying, "Don't associate with Kent. Don't associate with him. Yeah, you'll get cooties, and yeah, yeah your life will fall apart." It seemed like there was like a planning committee that that yeah. worked all this out in exquisite detail, but that's not how it happened. Yeah, yeah. Like everybody just knew, and some people actually mm. took mm. delight in ridiculing Kent and making up songs about him, and other people just kind of went along with it because everybody can't be wrong. Yeah, he must be weird. And some of us, like myself, were like, mm. hold on. I really feel sorry for Kent. There's nothing wrong with Kent. But I better not let anybody know that. I bet, you know, I better not let anybody see that I'm in sympathy with Kent. Otherwise, mm. I will suffer his fate as well. And because I didn't speak out, right. it looked like everybody was in agreement. And it made it all the harder for anybody else to speak yeah. out. And this is why what they're doing to the doctors is so important. Like like the ones that are, and you, you know more about this than I do. And I'd love to hear, you know, your take on it. But, you know, the ones who are literally being threatened with or actually having their licenses stripped for giving their honest medical opinion. Yeah. And, and I think it is, it's actually... It's part of the same phenomenon. God, you yeah. said so much there that I wanted to unpack. So let's start with what you just asked. Uh, we'll start there and see what happens. The uh, It's more than even just giving the medical opinion. I want people to understand that. Doctors out there weren't saying you should or shouldn't. I mean, people that were ostracized by, from the community, like me, were not saying you should or shouldn't do this thing. What we were trying to do is say, in this moment, does that thing make sense? Maybe it made sense here with this person. Let's say a patient. Maybe it made sense for this patient. But what about this patient? The, it's, it's, it's the, the level of discernment amongst some of our brightest, most compassionate neighbors, our physicians, nurse practitioners, etc. We're forced with either do it this way, or perhaps you're not going to have a job any longer. So it, w- it actually went, it wasn't even at the level of giving an opinion. So as I mentioned about my friend, I wasn't saying everybody out there should not get vaccinated. I was just saying, for me and my family, I don't think we're going to get vaccinated. That was enough for us to be associated with Kent. And uh, because we are not, as a medical professional, I am not out there with a sign on this corner, I suppose is what they hope we're hoping that said, get the vaccine. We're all in this together or whatever else. What what is more nefarious is that when we consider the, the, the principles of bioethics, the one that is often lacking, especially in my community in the OBGYN community is this principle of informed consent. And in order for you, Charles, to come to me as a, as a, as a client, a, a patient, and for me to give you options around what you might do for birth, for example, I would say, here are the risks, benefits, alternatives to this thing. Now, if I gave you 
a little snippet of information from either anecdotal or well-documented evidence from JAMA or New England Journal or the Green Journal, which is our, our OBGYN journal in the United States. If I were to give you information that made you hesitant about having the C-section that your doctor is recommending, that would be enough in the era of COVID for me to have my license and my entire platform taken away from me. Meaning, you can't practice medicine and be in our club unless you're willing to do the thing that we want you to do. But, th- but it goes deeper than that because this principle of, uh, these principles of bioethics used to be the sort of supreme court of how we practice medicine. You do no harm, you provide information, and you honor informed consent <clears throat> and the right to refuse treatment. But if I give you information and that information makes you vaccine hesitant, and, and that would be conditioned for me to lose my job, now I'm being faced with either don't provide information in order to glean informed consent or don't practice medicine. That's a pretty horrible dichotomy. So we've seen doctors everywhere that have had their licenses taken away, their positions removed, people at, you know, this cardiologist at Baylor, what's his name, Peter McCollig, who's like super well-published. Like this is a medical scientist through and through, and he's practicing, and he's actually not opposed to vaccines. He's opposed to this vaccine and how it's been marketed to the, through the media and whatnot. And for him, he's always going to have this kind of black star you know, where he has to walk around and everybody knows he's the guy that was against the COVID vaccine. But that's, that's crippling our ability as doctors to provide informed consent, which again, being a principle of bioethics, this is not to be messed with. This is not, uh, this is not a matter of opinion or a belief system or this new religion of medicine. This is a doctor's job to provide counseling around these things. And if I can't do the counseling, then I can't be a doctor. The principles of bioethics would, 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 would forbid it. So we're in a really tricky place. Now, to your point, I think a lot of doctors who made the decision like I did to just stand in our truth and rem- remember, I'm the one that went through all the training. I'm the one that compromised $500,000 in many years in my 20s where I could have been partying. I, ca- I sacrificed quite a bit to do this job. I don't need anybody's permission to tell me how to read the literature and then counsel my, my, my patients or clients. On the other hand, there's probably a lot of doctors who didn't want to lose their job. I was happy. Like I told you yesterday, I, I should be sending them, you know, edible bouquets of fruit, you know, thank you for giving me the nudge into, into my own practice. Maybe a lot of other doctors did that, especially given we did see the rise of alternative therapies until this COVID thing and bam, suddenly big pharma and the hospital, the medical industrial complex has all the answers. Suddenly we, we trust them again. Anyways, I've said a lot there. What, what, is, what, are, what is your impression as to, as to what's happening with the medical community? Because I think that there's something very dark here. There were a lot of the medical community who are more in the position yeah. like that I was in in fourth grade where I didn't have the courage to speak up. But I was like really disturbed by what was going on, but afraid of losing my job, um, you know, i.e. being classified as a weird yeah. kid, which in the end, <laughs> actually, like I couldn't escape that fate. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> so did you read that new article that came out about doctors and scientists at the CDC, at the FDA, at NIH, <clears throat> who are um, anonymously communicating with the, with the authors about their discontent? And they're, wow. they're like, I'm just waiting for retirement. And Yeah, maybe, maybe send it over to me. I, I don't think I read it. Was it, a, was it a news piece or was it like a journal publication? It was on Substack, but it was featured in the Defender. Find it. I can find it real quick here. 
top top scientists and doctors at the leading U.S. public health agencies are, quote, frustrated, exasperated, and alarmed about the direction of the agencies they work for, according to the authors of a Substack post published last week. The authors are um, Marty McCurry, MD, MPH, and Tracy Beth Hogue, MD, PhD. And they just like interviewed anonymously lots of NIH, CDC, FDA doctors and scientists. They're experiencing an exodus. They're complaining that their agencies are using weak or flawed data to make critically important public health decisions that are being driven by what's politically palatable, hmm. feeling shame and frustration, et cetera, et cetera. Like ignored a natural immunity. Yeah mandated vaccines and boosters with no strong supporting data. I mean, just like the whole thing. It's it's like almost a quiet revolution. I mean, I wish it were a revolution. I'm not sure. I, but it's I, I don't agree with you that it's a revolution. I, I yeah. think we're we're stuck somewhere in the mud here. And, and to your point about yeah. this, this is also similar. You know, people hear that and they're like, it's probably just a couple people. I know it's not a couple people, but there's very, for whatever reason, maybe people are young and they just don't want to tarnish their reputation early in their career. But these are older presumably older physicians who, like you said, they're just kind of riding this out because they don't want to rattle the cage right before they, you know, have their final, they get their, their gold watch or whatever for 25 years at, at their university or something. Yeah. To your point though, and, and back to what you were saying about the, the dynamics amongst kids, you know, in ostracizing the kid with cooties, Kent, for example, there's a, there's a smack of this whole thing. Like the consensus amongst physicians is this thing. Well, according to who, like who has surveyed all of the physicians in the country and said that there's a consensus, what would a consensus look like? Secondly, it also slaps of this, the science has settled, which we see in the climate story. We see it in, in a, a whole wide variety of, uh, of medical topics, but this idea that the science is UFOs would be another yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. You know, right. Yeah. So if the science is settled, that's antithetical to science. And there are articles like this that are showing that it, there's at least a handful. Is that a critical mass to cause a re revolution? We'll, we'll never know. But there's so much fear. There's so much on the line for physicians and other healthcare professionals to speak up about this. They lose their Instagram account. They lose their podcast. They lose their sponsors. They lose their job. They lose their family. Who knows? Yeah. Sometimes your family, your friends. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I published... I, I've been writing a little bit about about COVID again, I, and I solicited uh, stories from my readers. Yeah. You know, and there was one I remember in particular that she listed all of the groups that she had been kicked out of, like everything from her knitting circle to her ukulele mm. group to like the museum to the library to a church. You know, to like, like I mean. Like literally like dozens yeah. of groups had excluded her. Yeah. To add on to the long list of people I've lost in my life. And and on the other hand, I've gained a lot mm -hmm. of incredibly close friends, people I would never have expected to be so close to. But of the people that I lost, when we moved to Louisville, I got linked in with a Steiner study group at a local Waldorf school. And mm -hmm. we were meeting and then we were trying to figure out like, do we meet in person again? You know, we were doing it on Zoom. Okay, we're going to meet in person now. Uh, let's wear masks and, um, let's sit inside and wear masks, you know, and maybe open a window because of course that helps the virus get out and it doesn't come after you, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And so there was all this stuff and I kind of just kept my mouth shut. They knew I was a doctor, but they probably presumed that I was going along with the, the, the media narrative. And I had a cup of coffee with me one time. This is the last time I met with him. 
And I was pulling my mask down to take sips of coffee. And this one of the other people in the group stormed out, like sort of let the door close hard and stormed out and then later sent an email. It seems that some people don't understand the gravity of this situation. And um, I would prefer to meet in person only if people can agree to not take their masks down for the duration of the hour, even if it is to sip coffee. Like it was a very passive aggressive comment about me having mm-hmm. taken my mask down, sip my coffee and, and put it back. But, you know, that's that it was just another it was just another thing. It seems insignificant. But these are our people. These are our this is our community. Our tribe is being fractured by this thing. Yeah. And uh, not even. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'd like to comment yeah. on that incident. I mean, it's a you know, a very small incident, but actually it reveals a it lot. Does. Because, okay, so on the one hand, it should be pretty clear that it's not really rational. Right. I mean, we all know about like the poor size of the masks and the fact that a lot of transmission happens through aerosolized particles and not droplets. And, you know, you can, I mean, it's still, okay, like there's that scientific sure. level. And really though, <clears throat> What is going on in that situation is that you violated a taboo. Mm -hmm. We are magical religious beings, okay? And the way that we protect ourselves from evil spirits is by conforming to the rituals and taboos of our Mm -hmm. culture. So anyone who doesn't do that marks themselves as not belonging, but also as not being like as a heretic, but also like not being a a compassionate, uh, responsible member of society. And that was the, like, that was a lot of the messaging around it. You know, you do it to protect others. Yeah. You do it, this is your civic duty. So anybody like who doesn't go by that, like provokes this, this rage, like it's offensive. If you're not, it doesn't, and and the rituals and taboos don't have to actually work. What you're actually doing is signaling your participation in social harmony. Right. And so, so this, uh, yeah, it it incited like really strong passions and divisions. Yeah. Yeah. And gosh, there's so many things I want to talk about right now. I know that we had intended to talk about death a bit. We'll get into that for sure. We'll get into that. The main thing, what I was going to say now, though, is like one of the main themes of of my work around COVID in my book is this phenomenon of sacrificial violence, where any condition of social disharmony, and this goes back thousands of years, uh, when social tensions are rising where society is becoming polarized, where cycles of vengeance are taking taking hold, the solution has always been to find an, an internal enemy to dehumanize a victim or a subclass of victims and then to unify society by murdering them, literally, literally murdering them or figuratively murdering them. So mm. and once that happens, then social harmony is restored because everybody has discharged their, their anger and their bloodlust. And now the problem's gone. Right. Because the problem initially, this was what the philosopher René Girard mm-hmm. identified as the original social crisis yeah. 
it was these cycles of reciprocal violence. Right. Like that tore societies apart. And, you know, like maybe it was an accident and I caused you harm and then your relatives get revenge and then my relatives get revenge on them. And pretty soon everybody's taking sides. And the solution then is we all turn on Kent. Yeah. And everybody agrees, and we and so we ritually sacrifice Kent, and now harmony reigns again. Because of that, Kent must have been the cause of the problem to begin with. Right. And so this is the origin of the supervillain. This is the origin of all kinds of myths. It's the origin of the devil. That there's there's evil, evil, and we can destroy evil and bring order and harmony to the universe again. Like so many Hollywood movies have this plot too. Yeah. Yeah. So this was what, this is one of the deeper social forces that's going on and you just wade right into it by pulling down your mask. Right. Well, you know, I just did this, I did about four months of research for this two and a half hour solo cast I recently did on the, on a brief ish history of Western medicine, witches and women healers in the, these four centuries of the witch hunts, especially in Europe, Mm -hmm. what we did in the United States we had the, the cult of domesticity and angel in the house and whatnot. Those myths actually started pr- to predominate before the witch hunts got to be super mm-hmm. spectacular here in the States. But in Germany alone, there's accounts of like 100,000 people in a region being mass, just yep. mass hysterical murder. And when you, when you consider what you're describing, that gave everybody a sense with, of course, you know, the Protestants and Catholics being inextricably linked with the state and our governance procedures it gave everybody a sense of relief, like a collective sigh of relief. But did obviously, did that do any good for them? Of course not. You know, we murdered 85% of them were, were women and children. And you can imagine that going back to your experience with Kent, as soon as somebody appeared to to be in this sort of ostracized group, it just felt better to wipe them out. Let's not work through what this means. Let's not talk about the folklore and the mythology. Let's uh, not even... Let's not conjecture onto the internal strife of our society at the time that is prompting these new mythologies and these, this, this insatiable bloodlust for, for vengeance against some supernatural power, the, in, the, in that case being the devil or these heretical whatever. It also was probably very systemic. There was a lot of uh, financial and, and sort of power dynamics going on at the time. And um, mm-hmm. so we won't get into the witch hunts here, but, but we have seen this cycle emerge over and over and over again. Yeah. It's, it's not news. Well, the witch hunts are, 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 are really significant. Yeah. Like during that time, the best way to protect yourself from getting accused and, you know, tortured and killed would be to accuse somebody exactly. else of being a witch. Exactly. Yeah. Whether or not you believed it, whether or not you actually believed right. in this, just take them. They're, they have a bigger birthmark than I do. They're probably the witch, not me. Look, I believe when, I, when you poke me with right. a needle. I, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And, and even if you kept silent, that was dangerous. You know, same thing um, when the Hutus and the Tutsis, you know, when the Hutus massacred millions exactly of Tutsis right. in Rwanda. Yeah. Like, it's not like all of them thought that the Tutsis were actually human cockroaches. Yeah. Probably most of them didn't think that. But the appearance of unanimity is way more important than actual unanimity. Yeah. That's how totalitarians right. rule. And you mentioned like during the witch hunts that there were, you know, economic and political interests involved as well. That always happens. Fascistic powers will take advantage of this social phenomenon and ride it to power. 
All they have to do is hijack it to achieve their ends. So when, for example, those ends include like the incredibly high profits from COVID orthodoxy, from vaccines, from the suppression of generic and natural treatments and so forth, the powers that profit from that can either deliberately unleash or merely ride the wave of the social ostracism of the taboo breakers and those who fail to abide by the rituals. And this is where courage comes in and the need for somebody to say, I don't think Kent is weird, you know, or for somebody to, to say either through word or through action that the medical theater of mask wearing is absurd. Right. Like somebody has to say that and bear the brunt of that initial reaction. But what they do, this is what Matthias Desmond yep. is talking yep. about. Like they break the silence. They break the appearance of unanimity, mm. which again is a lot more important than actual. You don't need to, to rule a totalitarian society. You don't need the acquiescence. Well, you need the acquiescence, but you don't need the agreement of a majority. Right. You only need the agreement of a small minority of loud people yeah. Yeah. who will who will denounce anybody who doesn't go along with it. And then you also need the acquiescence and the fear right. of the majority who, even if they privately disagree with what's going on, they dare not say anything. Right. Therefore, to each of them, it looks like everybody's in agreement. They perceive that they are alone. They are alone, but they it's are not. It's the Spartacus moment. And, and, yeah. and also, to boot, I, I also am, what's coming to me is that if you consider any coming-of-age film, the actual hero that emerges is usually that person who stands up for the weakest person. You know, they're the, mm -hmm. they're the one that you would never expect, the, the, let's say, the, the beautiful cheerleader type or whatever who goes for the, the weird kid. They actually become yeah. the hero because despite what all of their friends and everybody think, they're going to actually think about this and wonder, like, is Kent really that weird? Like, I kind of like Kent. Kent's actually kind of a good guy. And so the fact that we align ourselves with that hero, even in our, even in our pop culture, you know, in, in movies and, and books and everything else, tells us that there is something critically important to that. But you're right, it does take courage, especially when there's a whole bunch on the line. That cheerleader may not be welcomed back into the cheerleading squad, or perhaps if they have a good enough relationship with their community they can actually trigger a critical mass for other people to feel the courage as well to become yeah. in alignment with them. And I think either way, it could go either way. But I also understand the fear of losing that community is what has forced a lot of people to just remain quiet and to start accusing the other witches, you know? <laughs> yeah. And the first people who do speak out, they might get burned at yeah, the stake. That's right. That's right. You know, like some of these doctors who spoke out early, they might never actually get rehabilitated. They might always carry an air of disrepute. Right even if eventually public opinion and the science comes to vindicate them, they gain an air of disrepute because they're not team players. Like associating with them could be dangerous yeah, right? because they are heretics. They have like this heretical tendency, you yeah. know, like, and, and you see this happening. You see people who are now starting to voice some doubts about COVID policy to still distance themselves from the early outspoken people like, you know, Malone, McCulloch, 
Not to mention like the Dirty Dozen or whatever yeah, they were right. called. Christian Northrup and uh, Kelly right. Bogan. Right. It's like, well, yeah. I, I'm certainly, I don't agree with her, but, yeah. you know, so having established that I'm not one of the weird kids now, you know, and by, by beating up on the even weirder yeah. kid, yeah. now now I can, you know, offer my serious and responsible uh, but more tepid critique yeah, exactly. of COVID orthodoxy. Yeah, 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 totally. And I also want to give you kudos that uh, from the very beginning, I, I know that you went through a lot of pushback. You had a lot of people leave your circle. A lot of people just think that this is a nature-trusting heretic. In the words of Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., who I think later became the uh, the dean of Harvard Medical School or something, he, he brought this word nature-trusting heresy when we were talking about traditional healing at the turn of the of the 19th century. And he used that word heresy. Well, what do you think? Do you think he intentionally used the word heresy? I'm sure he did because it brought us back to the witch hunts and this, this sort of magical thinking that couldn't possibly offer us anything as we saw the emergence of, of the uh, medical industrial complex. But anyways, to toot your horn a little bit, from the very beginning, you were coming out, people were pushing back, they were lashing out at you. And looking back, you were through the writing and people, when they buy your book, they'll, they'll read through this. You haven't been wrong about anything. And I know you don't need to know that you're right or wrong. That's not really the point. It adds a little salt to the wound because even after we see, you know, some maybe reprisal or maybe there's a remission or somebody says, Hey guys, we were wrong. Let's say the new England journal stands up and says, we were totally wrong. Everybody who, who thought COVID was nonsense, they were right. That doesn't, that doesn't untarnish people like me and you. We've already been labeled. And right. that's the sacrifice, I suppose, that we pay. But you haven't been wrong about anything. And you've been willing to admit, like, I'm okay with being wrong. I mean, I think I was wrong about some things. What were you wrong about? But I predicted, like, that the total death toll in the United States from COVID would be two to 300,000 people. And it's been closer to a million. Now, if you exclude people who died with COVID as opposed from of COVID... That cuts it down a lot. If you, you know, if we had, you know, not sent critically ill patients back to nursing homes, if we had not suppressed hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and NAC and zinc supplementation, vitamin C, vitamin D, et cetera, et cetera, probably it would have been less than 200,000. But still, you know, I can <clears throat> cheerfully admit that I got that one Let's wrong. pause there. Let's but pause yeah. there because I actually okay. don't. I actually disagree with you. I actually don't think that okay. we've seen a million deaths. I don't think we have, and the reason is that there have been pressures from reimbursement rates to whatever narrative was dictating how we fill out death certificates. I'm a hospice doc, guys. I'm not just an OBGYN. This person had a positive COVID test, even though they were in florid heart failure. That's a COVID death. That was happening every single day when I was on our hospice unit. And I would actually get called by some administrative person somewhere, hey, the family wants you to put COVID as the primary you know, diagnosis. Well, it wasn't. They weren't even, they were already super sick. They came in, you happened to swab them universally. They were already in the active dying process. Because it was a positive COVID test, does that mean that their, their florid renal failure, having just come off dialysis, didn't kill them? So you're right. You're right on one hand. Perhaps we could have saved a lot more lives. On the other hand, Every single person with a positive COVID test died of COVID, period. And so I don't think we'll ever know, honestly. I don't think that our mortality yeah. data is actually relevant anymore. <laughs> it's really sad. Yeah. But I don't agree with you. I actually don't think as many people were dying because they got this virus in their, na- in their nose 
It entered their blood, caught a f- caused a florid pneumonia, and they passed away days later. I don't think that that was actually the primary thing happening. Some people, yes, for okay. sure. All right. So maybe I'm wrong about being wrong about that. Yeah. But, and I'm um, not wrong about you yeah. being wrong about being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, some of the things like like the one thing that that did give me pause and said, okay, maybe I can tolerate a little bit of this insanity. And I felt like I was kind of gaslighting myself, but I was like, okay, to flatten the curve, to stop the system from being overwhelmed, okay, maybe we need to lock down for a couple of yeah. weeks. But I was like, at the time, I'm like, the, the, the basic justification for this, which is to save lives, which I said actually is a misnomer. There's no such thing as saving lives. There's only postponing deaths. That's right. This justification will never go away. There will be no reason to stop lockdowns and other measures after two weeks if it's still going to save lives as long as we put, you know, we elevate that to the highest spot on our altar and reorganize society to avoid as much death as possible. If that is our guiding light, then this is never going to end. I said that there could be new viruses, new variants, new mutations. I said that in March of 2020. Like <laughs> the problem here is this is fundamentally not only a like if we make this about in, into a, a arithmetic of mortality, right. then like is this the kind of society we want? A society geared around minimizing death. Right. Right. I, I asked a rhetorical question. I said, suppose, okay, because people say like, oh, these selfish people, they just want their freedom at the expense of, you know, the, the safety of grandma and, and other people. And I said, okay, suppose that it was your life, your life at stake. Suppose that the only way to save your life, Nathan, mm-hmm. would be to decree that nobody on earth can ever hug shake hands, sing together, dance together, or see each other's naked faces ever again. And it'll save your life. Would you do that? Almost everybody would say no. Yeah. Well, then why collectively are we making the decision to abolish all of those things in order to save some lives? Right. Right. Why? Without any questioning of like the relative value of prolonging life, postponing death versus, you know, hugs, choirs, churches, um, uh, dance parties, knitting circles, et cetera, et cetera. Like, don't forget about orgies. orgies. Don't forget about orgies, like uh, medicine circles, you know, like, like pretty much festivals, everything that makes life good. That, that, does not translate into epidemiological statistics. And this gets at a more basic level of the problem that I feel like it's kind of my job to illuminate because, because, you know, it's not so much in the conversation, which is how, how do we, and how should we make decisions as a collective and individually, the received decision-making process that is called scientific does it by some set of numbers Mm. Which means that only the things that you can measure enter into policymaking. Right, right, right. It's easy to measure mortality. It's easy to measure COVID deaths, or maybe not so easy, but you can 
theoretically yeah, they're, doing. They're, either, they're alive or they're dead, right? and we're in the middle of right. COVID, so yeah. it's COVID yeah. until proven otherwise, which is fine. Even if right. that was okay, is that enough right. for us to collectively, yeah. Can you measure the value of being physically present with your dying mother right. as she goes through her death process? Right. right. Yeah. Where, where, how do like, we quantify that? Where does that show that? up? Yeah. Is that important? Right. Is that important? You can't put a number on it. And so you had thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of, of elderly people dying alone. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and people in nursing homes, I, I was briefly in contact with one psychiatrist, you know, who works with, with elderly people and like the despair, mm. like that their, 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 their one light in their week was their weekly visit from their daughter, you know, and that in order to keep them safe, all in the name of safety, that in the name of safety, that, that was prohibited and they die alone or they die because they could become suicidal. They, they, there's nothing to live for. Like, where does that right. come in? And that's what, when people say that, that I'm, you know, a psychopathic narcissist who doesn't care about others. And that's why I advocate health freedom. I'm like, hold on. Like, and I even, they almost had me believing it for a while. I'm like, hold on. No, like this is coming from compassion for the people who are like for the children, you know, who are in this, this like dystopian hellscape of seeing masked faces all day and having to play at a distance from each other. And, and I mean, like this whole thing was so dystopian. Like I, it, it, I entered, I mean, I had periods where, and this probably doesn't do credit to my mental stability here, but like I had periods where I almost couldn't go out, go out of the mm. house. I mean, I could go outdoors, but I didn't want to go into public. Yeah. I had agoraphobia. Like I didn't want to go to the supermarket. It was just like mm. too horrific mm. mm-hmm. to see, not only just to see like everyone masked, but just the degree of complicity and acquiescence yeah. that it signaled. Right. I was like, this is not my universe. I, I do not want to be in this, in this reality. The masks actually bothered me more than the vaccines. As far as like injecting something into people's bodies that, I mean, now it's coming out. I just read some, okay, I'm not going to go down that particular trail of the the corruption mm. and in the in the studies that you know but but bad as that is somehow it was the dehumanization of the masking yeah. that bothered me more and in a way a like that's what it's the dehumanization that that allows all the other yeah. stuff i totally agree yeah yeah, and, and and real quickly, I do want to get into death phobia next, but uh, real quickly to to your point about this isolation and the depression, and you know, we're not even just talking about suicidality or, or or the suicide rates, but what if you previously had been okay living in a nursing facility, and now you're contemplating killing yourself because this is so demoralizing, discouraging in the very least, and perhaps your will to live has just dissolving in front of your eyes as this narrative is continuing and you're no longer able to see faces. You're no longer getting visitors. What more do you have to live for? That is very hard to tabulate in the larger epidemiologic sort of uh, uh, gleaning over the evidence, right? 
how do you how do you quantify all of those deaths, right? Maybe they didn't have COVID, yeah. so maybe they're not counted as COVID deaths. But there's something important here that you're that you're talking about, and that is again, it's not a matter of prolonging life. What we are doing is prolonging the dying process. And and I think we can see it as the dying of our culture in a way. And that is mm-hmm. that is the most morbid thing that I can think of. And I, I actually just had a, a moment about a, a two weeks ago because our our Burning Man camp announced they're going to last minute require mandates to have a vaccine if you want to camp with us after we've spent all the money and time planning and whatnot. And it, it, it occurred to me, this is maybe never going to go away. And how much am I able to take of seeing people masking and unmasking, masking and unmasking? Every time I go to the store, it seems like there's more people masking again. Like, is this ever going to go away? And am I going to start, is my mental health going to start really taking a turn? where I don't want to go out. I don't even want to be with people anymore. I mean, that's, is that life? Like I might as well be dead in in my, my yeah, but let's let, yeah. And let's say that this question is not an external objective happening that happens to us. And we are its victims, right? Let's, we can turn that question around and we can say, is that the way the world is going to be? No. Right. Why not? Because we say so. Because we will take a stand for a different world. Through our actions, we will bring about a different world. We will not do anything that is in conformity and acquiescence to mask world, to, to mandate world, to lockdown world, to separation world. We choose something else and our choices are powerful. And Maybe we can't change the choices of other people, but there's a lot of us who wish to choose um, toward a direction of freedom, toward relationship, toward community, toward nature, toward uh, celebration of life rather than fear of death. And this is the parallel society that I've been writing about and speaking about a bit, where instead of begging to rejoin the institutions that have excluded us, we create our own institutions. Right. Yeah. This came up, you know, last Christmas when lo and behold, we couldn't use the tickets to the Nutcracker suite that, that we had purchased, uh, not knowing that they were going to require vaccinations mm. at the door. Uh, so, and like, yeah, we could have like gotten fake vaccine cards and got in there. And legitimized and validated that particular ritual. But instead, we ended up, and I might be garbling the story a little bit, but what I remember is that we got together with other people in the community and had our own celebration. And we made music together. And same thing with like these, these festivals, like a lot of the big name music concerts, you know, vaccinated only. A lot of the venues where I used to speak at, you know, um, are no longer hospitable to people who don't want to mask and vaccinate. But now there are like all these other venues that started out underground, like that that started out having events that like I didn't even announce on my website, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and and it's like a whole alternate society. And so like you you doctors who are getting stripped of your licenses, there's another universe waiting for mm. you. You know, it's the world of, you know, functional medicine and, and all kinds of holistic, like, it's like my whole thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 
and and you know it's like these two societies haven't fully resolved yet into two. Oh, like school is another one. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. like before COVID, sending Carrie, who's nine right now, to a Waldorf or Montessori school was an option. Yeah. It was an option, and homeschooling was another option. Now, only homeschooling is the option, because in you know in the last two years, like. Even in the Montessori and, and Waldorf schools, I mean, they still, you know, had they were still wearing masks and partly they had the excuse of state mandates. But, you know, we talked to other parents in the schools like there was at least 60 or 70 percent, at least during the peak of COVID hysteria that were, you know, very scared and wanted the masks. Yeah. So now we have our own little homeschool co-op. Mm. And we're not going back. So in a way, like, like, did we really feel comfortable in that system to begin with? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, and, and like you got fired, right? Like, did I want to be there anyways? (laughs) Yeah. Like, was that a full yes for you or were you constantly making compromises? Yeah. No, I, from my personal experience, like I told you, I should be sending them flower bouquets because it was actually, it requires courage to break those golden handcuffs of the promise of working within the medical industrial complex. I get it. Every doctor out there listening, nurse practitioner, whoever in the hospital system, I get it. I know why you work in the hospital system. You were trained specifically for that job. It seems unfathomable that you would create some life raft where you could see people and take care of them based on the, the skill set and your, and your experience that you have. And I understand why it's so hard. And if you're every single day complaining about the conditions in the ER, the conditions in the operating room, the conditions of being forced by Kaiser to see 20 patients a day in the clinic and not being able to spend time with them. Why are you still doing it? It takes courage. It's not easy. But this was an opportunity for people to say, hey, I see the system for what it is. You do you. I'm going to do me over here. And that is probably the most courageous thing that I've had to do. But I don't know if it was actually courage. It was, it was me being forced out. Yeah. And then figuring out how I was going to build this practice of my own. But I, I am, I've never been happier with being a doctor. In fact, I'm telling people, hey, being a doctor is not so bad if you can have a practice the way that I have it. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I don't feel like I was especially courageous either. You know, yeah. for me, what happened was like I spoke out early on. I did, kind of didn't realize how much trouble I yeah. would get into. Yeah, that's right. Because I've been saying these things for, I mean, you know, Zika and the mentality of control, like... I've been writing, I wrote some, I've been writing stuff on like germ theory and I've been a vaccine skeptic, to put it mildly, you know, since 1995. Mm. So I wasn't saying anything new. It just wasn't controversial. Yeah. yeah. Like it wasn't political. People don't care about what you had to say about it until now. <laughs> right. And it seemed like philosophical. I would even talk about death phobia, yeah. you know, and and uh, the, the uh, insanity of... Uh, worshiping at the altar of safety. I have like a chapter on on the regime of safety in the ascent of humanity, which I wrote in the early two thousands. Yeah. Like I haven't been, I'm not saying anything different, but all of a sudden I got into big trouble. So I went quiet for a while. You know, I described it like like really coming to 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 clarity on what do I actually know, what is coming from direct experience, what's coming from my gut. What is merely a convenient belief that I've accepted because it fits in with my other beliefs. Right. And, and like, I, I had a lot of doubt 
uh, some of it healthy, some of it unhealthy. Like it's unhealthy when you doubt something that you actually experienced. <laughs> when, when something makes you doubt something that you've directly experienced, then that's called gaslighting. Yeah, that's right. Your experience isn't true. And, and eventually I'm, I'm like, hold on here. Like all this, how do I know that the science, the, the, at least the, the presentation of what the science is, is, is wrong? Yeah. How do I know that that's yeah. wrong? How do I know for sure? I mean, I'd like to think that Pfizer is corrupt. They've paid enormous criminal settlements, but how do I know that they haven't reformed? Right. How do I know that they're not on their good behavior now? How do I know? And at some point, I, like that doubt became toxic where I began to maybe not directly doubt, but to kind of discard mm. direct experiences that I've had that totally contradict what science and medical science says is possible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my wife is a healer. I mean, I see people sometimes literally every day walk out with their medically incurable conditions that they've seen, you know, doctors and specialists for decades right. cured. Right. Okay. Maybe not every day, but that happens a lot, yeah. like every week. Am I supposed to just discard that because the science says that that's not possible? <laughs> like I know that, that the reality that, that science and medicine dictates to us is a very narrow and distorted version of real reality. Yeah. And I came to like, as I said, kind of discard those data points. Mm. So when I re-embraced those and I also began trusting like my gut revulsion mm. at the masking, for example, and, and just like, I'm like, okay, maybe I am wrong, but I have to trust something and this is what I'm going to trust. And I just reached this breaking point where I was like, fuck, mm. I don't care if I get, I know I'm going to get into trouble. And I don't care. And I'm speaking out now because it wasn't so much because I finally overcame my cowardice and came into courage. It was because I cleared out the inner doubts, the, 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 the toxic doubts, mm. and came to what I think of as sanity. Yeah. Sanity is that you bring in all the data points. Mm. If you are excluding the negative stuff, then you are, you know, wearing rose-colored glasses. Yeah. If you exclude the miracles, then you're going to fall into despair. And a lot of people are falling into despair these days yeah. because, because it seems really hopeless. Yeah. But, it, but if you take in the miracles, like, like, for example, the miracles of healing that can happen to a body, then you also have to accept that similar level of miracle could happen to the social body, mm. to the body politic, to the ecological body. And despair can only continue by excluding those possibilities. So I was taking in everything. And as I did that and became more integrated, I was like, I could speak dissenting, my dissenting views mm. from like an inner clarity. Yeah. And once I had that clarity, I could not keep my mouth shut, you know? And I just, just like, I don't care. Yeah. I, I don't care. Like another thing that happened was 
Well, you do care, yeah. but you don't care in the way that you previously cared. Like, like in the moment where I pressed publish, I didn't care. Huh. Interesting. You know, I was just like, I mean, literally, that was the words that came through my. Came, I don't right, click. Right my <laughs> yeah, I don't care. I'm just going to do it. Wow. Yeah. So this new opportunity that has that we keep kind of coming back to, I, I think that your your book, which by the way, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, was written way before. I think we're still clinging before the COVID pandemic. I think we're still yeah. hoping that that is what's going to emerge. And you wrote this incredible essay, the, the Rehearsal is Over, where you actually get into Stan Groff's perinatal matrices. And it's, oh no, it wasn't the Rehearsal is Over. It was, it's time, a time to push. Is that one in your book? I can't remember. It's time to push. I don't know if it is actually. I think I think I left that one out. Yeah. Well, the Rehearsal is Over is, yeah. is relevant because it's like, what are we waiting for? It's time to, to, yeah. to like start putting our money where our mouth is. For, so to speak, I, I won't, I'll let people read the essay for yeah. themselves. But then you also wrote this push, this essay called A Time to Push, which is like, if we want to see this new world happen, now is the time. People right. need to start having the courage, taking their stand, maybe defending Kent in the classroom, whatever, whatever it looks like mm -hmm. to you in your personal life. There are other, you know, I'm perhaps optimistic, but I'm not maybe as optimistic as you. And part of it is our, our death phobia runs so deep and it reflects, I think, our inability to discern vitality from merely delaying, you know, the, mm -hmm. the end of the road, the prolonging the dying process, as you called it. So let me read a quote from you because I just interviewed a guy, Stephen Jenkinson. I really want to get your take on this. I, I'm sure you read this before, but let's, let's read it anew because Stephen is one of, I, I kind of hold him in the same regard as you do. He's deeply thoughtful and especially thoughtful about the death and dying process way before. I mean, this has been for decades. And here's what he said about the COVID moment. If there was ever a time crafted by something seemingly divine to give us a chance to make, to more or less voluntarily rein it in, to recognize the unsustainable finally for what it is, and at the 11th hour and 55th minute, with our feet on the precipice, to step back, this would have been such a time. And it's abundantly clear that that did not happen, is not happening, will not happen. Our death phobia is so adroit and so agile in the dominant culture of North America that we took the realities of COVID-19 and seconded them to our death phobia, such that death phobia was more prevalent and more consequential in most of our lives than the opportunities that the crisis promised. And that is tragic beyond measure. So that was actually a quote from a different interview he had done on a podcast called um, The Uncivilized Podcast. And I do think mm -hmm. what he's getting to really captures the crux of your essay, uh, The Coronation, which again is the namesake for the book. But the question I want to ask you is, when we look at the way that, that our culture has operated, it's similar to the classroom. You're either for or against Kent. You can't just be like, guys, maybe Kent's got some really great magic tricks he can show us or something else. You're either for or against us in every aspect of our society. And I actually think that the, the conversation around COVID puts us into one of these camps, generally speaking, right? Because if you're not in one camp or the other, you're against us. And then you're standing on the top of the fence getting pelted with rocks from both sides. So on the, the two camps are, this whole thing is a total conspiracy. There's nothing to this. It was completely a hijacking by, you know, Klaus Schwab and all, and Bill Gates and all these other people for the purpose of population control and everything else. That's the one side. It's the full conspiracy theory um, angle. The other side is that this thing is horrifically dangerous. It's the new bubonic plague. If we don't mask up and take care of one another, our society is going to crumble 
anyways. But in both of those camps, right? But science will science save us. Science will save science us. Science can save us. Uh, yeah. Science is a loser. I mean, it's, it's kind of like there's no middle ground yeah. here. So between these two camps, the one theme that I'm taking from it is that both of them deny the fact that we are a part of nature. We are not at war with nature, even if there are viruses out there to hurt us, that we are not being confronted um, by this external enemy, that this is a part of the human experience. And our fear of mortality is, is sort of the primary hypothesis or the, the driver of our hypotheses in either camp, because both of them are denying the opportunity that this, that this, that this COVID moment avails us. So when you, when yes. you hear this, how can you be so sure that we're going, it's not a fair question, Charles, I realize that, but, but how can you be so sure that they, the opportunity is now and that we're actually turning a corner? How, how are you so optimistic throughout this whole thing? My optimism is not a function of a certainty that good things are going to happen to us and that some beneficent external power is going to rescue us from our condition. My optimism is based on a recognition of our power. Yeah. We have the power to choose a better future. Mm. That power never goes away. And ultimately, on a mystical level, it doesn't depend on other people exercising their power. I'm not going to mortgage my mm. optimism to the uncontrollable question of whether a majority is going to change or not. On some level, on a soul level, we recognize that our own choices have cosmic significance. Mm. This can, because it can never be taken away from us, there, the optimism can never be taken away. Like true optimism is simply an embracing of who we really mm. are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it brings to mind the quote from Viktor Frankl mm. in the concentration camps. He said, there were those in the camps who went from hut to hut comforting others mm. and giving away their last piece of bread. They were few in number, but they demonstrated that an important truth, that everything can be taken from a man except one thing, which is his choice of how to respond to circumstances. Mm. If we integrate that dimension of our power, there is no, no force in the world that can stand up against us. Hmm. So the, the, the two sides that you just articulated in extreme form, um, they actually mirror each other. Absolutely. In, in several ways. Um, you mentioned one, you know, the death phobia not being questioned. Another one is that they diagnose the problem with the world in the same way. There is a bad thing that is coming to get mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. For the COVIDians, the bad thing is SARS-CoV-2. For the plandemicists, for the people who believe in, in that narrative, that. it's these bad guys. Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab are the virus. Yeah. They're the bad thing that is victimizing us. Both are actually not fully embracing what we might call terrain theory which doesn't, in my, my version of it, isn't that, you know, viruses are imaginary. Yeah, it's not in opposition to just, germ theory. It is a yeah, right, complementary right. to it. It's not that, that, you know, it's just a, a degenerate tissue state and, you know, viruses are an artifact of that. It's that 
they that viruses and, and, and bacteria and other germs take advantage of conditions that are salubrious to them, that accommodate them, and that they can play a role in healing from those conditions, or they might kill you in the process. But there's there they are that that germs are to a greater or lesser degree a function of a relationship between body and environment and within the body. Well, look at the microbiome. It's the it's the they're the gatekeeper the to everything yeah. into our body, it goes through the microbiome. Right. Yeah. Right. Like the microbiome is in um disharmony, it's been damaged, then just like a field that's been stripped of vegetation, the weeds come right. Out, you know, right. so so like yeah, that that so the same is true of these parasites and predators and pathogens that we call that that you know are whatever Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and Dr. Fauci like and and I, I even and I'm saying that in quotes because in the end they are actually divine human souls. And if you exclude that piece of truth from your palate, then you are insane. Mm. Like that is one of the truths that has to be incorporated. They are children of God yeah. too. And not to like give lip service to that, but to actually look for that when you try to understand them. Just as you look at a virus and you understand that it's not just, okay, Maybe I'm, I'm not going to try to stretch it that far, but let me just say we have to look at the terrain. Yeah. Why are we so susceptible to the virus of fascism? Why are we so susceptible to the virus of, of fear-based control that just points to some scary thing and then we all scurry to do the bidding of an authority? Yeah. What is the terrain? And you named it. It Like a big part of the terrain, a key factor in this terrain is death phobia. As long as we are more terrified of death than we are passionate about living well, then we're going to be easily herded by one threat or another into conformity with the dictates of power. Yeah. That as long as like that, we will be manipulated either by the current set of, of oligarchs or the set that will replace them in the name of health freedom in the name of of you know whatever ideals that we hold if that isn't healed we will be vulnerable to manipulation so we have to and this goes all the way to the bottom of what it is to be a modern human yeah. being like the whole the the self the modern self is separate sees itself understands itself as separate from other mm. believes that I mean, this is science, that there is nothing beyond measurable matter. And what we can measure shows that consciousness resides in the brain. And when you die, then consciousness itself is extinguished. You're annihilated. And that's the ultimate catastrophe for the self, which is this separate ego, yeah. skin encapsulated ego. Therefore, to postpone that ultimate calamity is of the highest importance. Well, that is a mythology. Right. That is a cultural belief. And therefore, if we are going to truly heal from uh, pandemania, as I've been calling it, the healing has to go to that level. Yeah. It, it, I mean, this is, and this is what Stephen Jenkinson is speaking to. It's, it's, 
it's it's given us an opportunity to choose something else besides risk minimization and death postponement. Safety first. We should we should be more like safety third, like in the Burning Man community. <laughs> safety third. Yeah, I, I, I even that. put that in one of my essays, and boy, oh boy, did I get read for that. <laughs> I'm not saying safety is not important. You know, it's third. Not quite sure what second and first are, but <laughs> right. you know, safety is third. But so this is what Stephen is 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 pointing to. Like here, we have an opportunity to choose something besides risk minimization and death postponement. And in his typical pessimistic fashion, love the guy, but you know, it can be very pessimistic. No yeah, it can be. Uh... Yeah, no, no, no one accuses him of wearing rose-colored <laughs> glasses. He says we failed. <clears throat> we we had the opportunity, yeah. and we all flocked to whatever we were told is going to keep us safe. And it sure looks like that. Yeah. But, you know, I don't think it's over yet. I sure hope you're right. The way that these initiations work sometimes, this happens in, 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 in life in many ways, is that a crisis emerges that gives you the opportunity to choose either to continue the way of being that generated the crisis or to choose something else. And say that you choose to continue. Well, then it's going to be presented to you again and again and again, ever intensifying, just like in relationship. If you have, if you're in an abusive relationship and, and, you know, you get out of that one, but you don't actually heal the underlying trauma, then you find yourself in another one and another one and another mm -hmm. one. I mean, everyone knows what I'm talking about here. We call it, oh, it's a pattern. There's something to look at here. Each time you get into that new abusive relationship and it reaches ahead, a crisis moment, again, you have that choice and you don't have to choose it. Yeah. Like it's like the, the, the alcoholic hitting bottom. Where is bottom? Is bottom the when your wife leaves you? Is bottom when you end up in prison? Mm. Is bottom when you're like dying of cirrhosis of the liver mm. and you're still sneaking drinks in your hospital bed. Like where's bottom for you? Each of these crises, each of these breakdowns is, is it illuminates another path that you can take. So here we have another one. Okay. Maybe we didn't, but maybe we didn't choose to, to repudiate death phobia, but maybe we weren't really so conscious of it. Maybe this, is showing us what we were willing to sacrifice for a little bit of safety. Yeah. And now we're being shown that we didn't even get that. Right. You know, right. we went through all of the, all of the uh, confinement, all of the, the lockdowns, the distancing, the ridiculous obsessive hand washing, you know, the, the masking, the, the keeping children home, the, the, the vaccinations, the boosters, like all that stuff. And people are still dying of COVID. Mm. So we're getting a message and we will continue to get this message again and again. I would like to say until we get it, but ultimately that's always a choice. We have choice. And the reason that I'm saying this is to help bring to light mm. what our choice is. Because only when a choice becomes, this is, this is why I call it a coronation to begin yeah. with. It's that it's making unconscious choices visible. Therefore, we, we can become sovereign. 
And coronation is an initiation into sovereignty. It's when unconscious choices become available for conscious That's choosing. Right. Yeah. I think you've convinced me. And I'm, I'm also thinking back, what came to, up to, for me was a, an interview you did a couple months ago with, um, it was on totalitarianism, uh, CJ Hopkins, your interview with him. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it, 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 there's a lot, there's a lot in that interview, but the, the bottom line being, and, and this also is, is related to, um, Desmet's work on mass, mass hypnosis, mass yeah. psychosis, where the, the conditions, the terrain needs to be a, appropriately optimized before a totalitarian regime, totalitarian regime can just kind of take over. Like it's not just one day somebody stops, steps in and says, Hey, here's how we're doing things. It is a slow fermentation that gets us to that place. And I, I then also think in reverse, you know, if we go back into history, when our cosmologies changed from a more bisexual, androgynous female deity, like if we look back in ancient uh, Denmark, like roughly 1300 BC, there was this female deity, Nerthus, and they prayed to her every spring. And they, that's when they, 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 everybody was having sex and the shoots were coming up through the ground and the fertility goddesses, and she was considered the mother of earth. They prayed to her and she always rewarded them. But then there was some, some sort of you know, ecological shifts that were happening and the glaciers started descending. So the waters were rising and covering up all of their fertile soil. And no matter how hard they prayed to Nerthus, they weren't getting anywhere. So they started praying to the gods of war, the gods of thunder, the iron age was coming and there were marauding tribes coming in. And I think about how that process was not just an overthrowing of the female deities. It was a long drawn out process whereby people were feeling destitutely they they were desperate for for something to help them, and then we fast forward into the witch hunts. The witch hunts were four centuries long, which is hard to fathom. But at some point, the power of the church and its inextricable link with the state it was dissolved, and there was there were people that slowly took these steps forward, maybe one courageous person at a time, in order to wrestle spirituality from the state over our governance structures over the elite from the elite ruling classes and only then was the final you know witch hung in germany somewhere in like the mid 18th century but we look back and we're like that was appalling how could we have let that happen but it also we also yeah. came out of it it's not like we're still in the women are still being burned at the stake necessarily not in the same for the same reason but more metaphorically now than anything um in the united states but but when we consider that I think people in the middle of, let's say, the 15th century, probably this was just the way things go. Accuse anybody who's a witch, right. and we're just going to keep doing this until, bam, at some point, things change. And I, I don't mean to diminish the incredible atrocities of the witch hunts and compare them to what, what's going on today. You know, I, I wouldn't dare do that because people don't like metaphors. Um, but when we consider how dark that was... If this isn't even that dark, of course we can get out of this as long as we make the decision to not let it continue to get darker and darker and darker. But do you think it needs to get darker before more people will stand their ground and start to just say, fuck it, I don't care, and hit hit publish? Again, this is not an objective question. Yeah. Um, it's something that we ask ourselves. Does it need to get mm -hmm. darker for me to take my next step into consciously choosing yeah. something else am i ready and that the answer to that can change instantaneously we have to get out of the habit of making our creation of the future yeah. contingent 
on passive acceptance of what other people do. What, you know, are they ready? Is it going to happen? In one of my essays, I, I, you know, used the example of Elon Musk. Now, not that I approve of everything that he does. Like, I don't think that we should be putting tens of thousands of satellites into space to, to beam, you know, uh, radio frequencies at us, et cetera, et cetera. But like, there's something really compelling about the guy. If somebody asks him, what is the future in five years? Are there going to be, you know, tens of thousands Mm. of satellites? Or what is, what is the world going to be like in five years? He doesn't take that as an invitation to somehow assess objectively what's going to happen outside of himself. He takes that as an opportunity to tell Mm. you what it's going to be. I'm glad you asked. Here's how it's going to be. And, and that is what I find compelling about him. Like, he, he reminds us of a power that actually inheres in all of us Yeah. to not be the victim of the future. So the witch hunts, like I got in trouble yeah. for comparing what's going on today with the witch hunts and the Holocaust and so forth. I wasn't exactly. saying that it is yeah, as that bad. What I was saying is that similar yeah. social forces were at work. And these extreme episodes make visible the social forces. And as I was saying, ask us, if is that what we want? So maybe, you know, in, in Christianity, mm. for example, like one of the social forces was uh, misogyny. Uh, and, he, there, and so society was like, here's what it looks like in the extreme. And maybe that's what it took for us to become aware of it. But although like there are, are many, many narratives that you can use to... Um, as lenses to understand the witch hunts. I mean, one of them was that it was actually um, delivered enormous harm to masculinity, even more than to femininity, because every woman who was burned at the stake had a husband, a father, or, you know, a brother who couldn't prevent it from happening or dared not prevent it from happening or had to watch had to watch, was forced to watch. That trauma to the masculine is still with us today. Mm. And yeah, um, Western society has not yet recovered from the 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 horrific darkness. (laughs) We have not yet healed from that. There's a lot of healing. And this is another, this is another aspect. Yeah. I mean, just think about that, you know, and what legacy was passed down from, the men who are supposed to worship the feminine. Like there's, I understand this goddess worship, you know, like when, when Stella was pregnant and before my previous marriage, Patsy was pregnant, I was in a state of awe. Like, like life, a baby is growing inside this. How do you know how to do that? You know, like, I mean, I can, and like we have science and stuff now, but I mean, imagine what it was like prior to that. I mean, this is something that I cannot do as a man. So, and I am here for life and, and the woman is the vessel of life. And so, of course, I want to do mm-hmm. everything I can to serve life and protect life and provide for life and create a, a, a perimeter of safety where childbirth can happen and nursing can happen and motherhood can happen. And like, like this is like akin to a state of religious awe. I get that. So... If that is my nature, imagine what it is like 
to be completely unable to exercise that function or, or to have been cowed yeah. into not exercising. And a lot of men probably did try to stop it and they were killed too. Um, but, but so this, this wound to the masculine, mm. um, we're just starting to become aware of it today and to see how it plays out in our passivity and failure to defend life in all of its forms. Yeah. But that, as we become aware of that, that that's what calls us uh, to make a different choice. So the healing that needs to happen is vast. And yeah. that's, that's not pessimism. That's just a recognition of where we are right now. We have descended very, very far. But the question isn't, can we heal in a generation or even can we heal in a thousand years? I don't think we can heal fully in a thousand years. Yeah. The question is, have we had enough? Is it time to begin the return journey? And I say it is time. It's time to push. The time is now. The rehearsal is over. Beautiful. Well, in, in the interest of your time, Charles, I, I was just going to leave it there, but I do have one more question because I think you ended that so beautifully. And by the way, I've gathered questions from my community because mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't bearing having you repeat yourself. And what are people really thoughtful about that maybe oh, yeah. these other interviewers aren't asking? So a lot of this questioning has actually, I can't take full credit for it. Um, Josh Trent contributed. Yeah, Nathan, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to spend some more time and, and, you know, if it's too long. Oh, no, no, no. We've already gone through all the questions. I wanted to ask you one final question. So I got, I got questions from Jason Leister, Josh Trent, um, oh, okay. my mom, her husband oh, okay. contributed questions. Marin Green contributed questions. These are all great people in my community. Mm -hmm. The most, um, oh, Mimi and Chase of the Medicine Podcast, like a lot of really great people were, were excited about this. But the best question that I had and mm -hmm. the most important question, given everything we've talked about, actually came from my wife, Stephanie, last night as we were falling asleep. She was like, I got something that you need to talk to Charles about. So um, I am the conduit. I'm the gatekeeper to Charles right now. And uh, my wife asked, given that everything we've talked about, and she's listened to a lot of your conversations, read a lot of your essays, and given that we have this moment to... to to become more cohesive versus more divisive as people start to maybe stretch their necks to see around the corner. How have you, one thing you've been extremely, been extremely good at is, is um, using a finesse to invite people of all walks into the conversation. I think you do that in the most respectful way. I've heard you go on podcasts where you know that they want to, to discourage people from, from your work. And you do it with such finesse that actually opens them up to conversation. I won't even mention the shows because it's not worthwhile. And I think a part of that has been, you know, a part of this, this COVID moment has been setting boundaries, um, setting boundaries for where you're willing to give some, some, some leash and when you're going to take some back. Given that you're going to always be the guy who wrote this incredible book, and people are going to be really confronted by it at first, and maybe some people actually come around to a new way of thinking, what is your advice to people who are still struggling with these conversations, setting boundaries with their family, maybe inviting other people in? What is your advice to people? I mean, what is the crux of your, your approach to having these conversations? Because I don't think too many people are, are able to do what you do with regards to seeing what people actually see eye to eye on secretly and helping them to see maybe what they don't agree on, but they think they agree on. Mm -hmm. It's a big question, I know, but I think it's an important part to moving forward. 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're speaking to a, a situation that a lot of people have encountered um, in families where a couple things go on. One is that, you know, maybe you see friends and relatives um, complying with idiocy, hmm. injecting poison into their veins, and you want them to stop because you love them. Also, they are maybe ostracizing you, excluding you from family yeah. gatherings or demanding time, that you yeah. get vaccinated before you can see your grandchildren. I hear a lot of stories like that. So one thing that, that I think everybody has experienced is the futility of trying to convince somebody uh, to change their beliefs. A saying that I've navigated by is that you can't reason somebody <sighs> out of a great. position that they didn't reason, them, yeah, reason themselves into to begin with. So what does, so that, then, then the question is how, how do beliefs change? Because sometimes they do. And you have to understand then that beliefs are part of a whole state of being. And that when that state of being changes, the beliefs can change along with it. So, so to deliver an experience to somebody that doesn't, um, that, that they're ready for, that changes them, can also soften their beliefs. And for me, the most important thing is just to respect somebody as a full human being, to understand what it's like to be them. So we recently had a gathering with my uh, new in-laws. My son's getting married, you know, and the guy's like a professor of medicine, you know, so is his wife. I mean, they're very um, <clears throat> orthodox in that way. And I'm sure that if we talked about it, we'd have profound disagreements on all things COVID. And like, yeah, there's part of me that yeah. wants to like, you know, lock horns with him. But what is that part? And why do I want to do that? And... There's part of me that wants to see him as a caricature of a COVIDian, as a, you know, a caricature of somebody who holds a certain set of beliefs and not as a full human being. And when I remember to see people in truth, which is in their divinity and full humanness, then if there is something to say to convince them or to plant a seed, then I will know when to say it. I know when it'll be received. I'll be clear on what is actually subtle aggression and what is a genuine offering. Like I will know when not to say anything and I will occur to them as a friend, not as an enemy. Because I'm not actually out to defeat them in a battle of ideas and to, to colonize them, to make them right. into, right. to, to um, subjugate them to my belief system. And that doesn't mean that I don't have my belief system. And maybe sometimes I will say, no, I'm not going to go to this event. I'm not going to go to this gathering. But it won't be an act of aggression. It won't be an act of hostility. So this it's it's kind of a paradox. Actually, standing in love and compassion makes you a more effective agent of battle if it does come to a battle. Yeah. And it makes you a more because you understand your enemy then. If it is a matter of an enemy, 
And sometimes it is. Like sometimes, you know, we have to struggle and fight to uh, resist mandates or something like that. Usually, though, it, it, it isn't a fight. Usually we impose the template of fight onto all kinds of dramas that don't have to be a fight. Anyway, we become much more powerful agents of change yeah. when we are standing in the truth. I mean, how could it be any different? And so like the actual like strategies and tactics and here's how to, here's what to say in this situation and that situation, I'm, like those are secondary. Those principles are secondary. What's primary is how we see each other. And ultimately, this whole train wreck of a pandemic response oh, yeah. and more broadly, the political situation today, the polarization, all of that is symptomatic of how we are seeing each other. Yeah. That's where the dehumanization comes in and opinion tribes. I mean, I'll say a lot of the the political division is caused by a breakdown in community, meaning and identity that then sucks us into yeah. um, false associations and identities. Like we're offered, oh, here's how you can belong. And those that belonging is contradistinguished to the other side who become a them less than fully human. They become caricatures. They become you know, like these frothing white supremacists or frothing Antifas, or frothing, like, you know, moral morons yeah. or intellectual morons, like these idiots, you know, like these cartoons. That isn't the truth. The truth is, and I'll say it again because it's important. The truth is that we are divine beings. And when we, and so the operating mm. question for me, is what is it actually like to be you? That's yeah. not to let you off the hook. It's to understand you. It doesn't mean that I or capitulate you, or you to your demands. Or compromise integrity. It's just, yeah. Like as in an abusive relationship. No. It's not like, oh, I understand you now, so I'm going to let you have your way. No. I understand you. I understand me. And this is my boundary. Hmm. But it's not, I'm not going to make you into... Hitler, yeah. in order to wow, permit myself to enforce a boundary. Well, I'm sure my wife will be satisfied yeah. with that. <laughs> yeah. Amazing, Charles. Well, thank you for spending so much time with me today. Uh, you know, your episode, the first one we did, was the, the most listened to, most downloaded episode. So share amongst your, your clan, and, um, and we will get a lot of people running to the bookstores. Uh, where, where would you prefer people yeah. go to get the coronation? Uh, with the full title is Essays from the COVID Moment. The Coronation Essays from the COVID Moment. Uh, there's various purchase options on, on my website. You know, you can do Amazon, you can do indie bookstores, you can go to, to the Any way to get a directly. copy. <laughs> I get a lot of flack for even having Amazon as an option. My publisher says that the more people who buy it on Amazon, like the higher it goes in their rankings and the more like yeah. it kind of bootstraps itself into like more visibility. <laughs> But then again, like, I don't think Jeff Bezos really needs the money. The future of Amazon, by the way, is yeah. 
it's going to be a regulated public utility. <laughs> and you're never wrong. How do I know that? Because I said so. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Charles. It's, uh, it's just been great to get to be friends with you. And um, we'll get everybody heading to your website and the bookstores for your book. Thank you again. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. There's a reason that the most listened to podcast episode that I've ever recorded was with Charles Eisenstein many episodes ago on this very podcast. So I hope that you really enjoyed that. I hope you did. Charles is somebody that I, I hope to grow even closer to over the years. His wife, Stella, is also amazing. She's been on my podcast. As long as we have somebody like Charles out there who's writing, sharing, and just, just coming to the conversation with, a, with an open mind and an open heart and, and a willingness maybe even to be wrong, I feel like that's actually what we need. You know, I, I always say that when we show up in authenticity, it gives people close to us permission to be authentic themselves. There's not a lot of authenticity anywhere, not on podcasts, not on Instagram, not on email newsletters, not at work, not in our personal lives, because we're afraid of what other people are going to think. And I think Charles gives us permission to show up in authenticity, airing out all of his controversies, his deep thoughts that he probably comes up with, again, keeps them up at night, and but also being willing to admit that the I don't know. But when you put together books like this, I feel like it's just so important to support them. So if you want to support Charles's work, go to Charles Eisenstein. I'll put it in the show description here. You don't have to worry about writing it down or figuring out how to spell it. It's kind of like Einstein, but with a couple extra letters moved around. You can um, support his work on a monthly basis. You can also subscribe to his newsletter. His Substack is incredible. You just get an incredibly potent piece of writing every couple of days in your, in your inbox. And um, I donate to his cause to make sure that he can continue doing this and, and, and uh, continue operating through the, the gift economy, which he writes so eloquently about in some of his other books. His other books, by the way, are The Climate, A New Story, which I've, I've made it about halfway through, but then I got caught up with some other things. But his thoughts on climate are going to be challenging for you. But this is somebody who is deeply thoughtful about this. He's not just Wikipediaing stats and whatnot from around the world. He's really, really thoughtful about not the CO2 emissions story of climate, but he's, he's interested more in the human behavior aspect of climate and our relationship to planet Earth. And that's what that book is all about. The more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. When I first read this, I bought like 20 books from Charles, and I think I've given them all out. But if you don't have a copy and you've made it this far in the show, reach out and I'll see if I've got another one laying around. Because that's, I think, that's the most important book anybody should ever read. The Ascent of Humanity is his baby, and he'll tell you it's his favorite it is dense, it is long, but it is well worth the read. And then Sacred Economics, this is the first one that I read that I mentioned back in college, all about money gift and society in the age of transition. And then he lastly wrote a book called The Yoga of Eating, which I think is also a very beautiful book. So go to charleseisenstein.org, support Charles, support our sponsors. If you want to find me, belovedholistics.com is my website. I've got a private association. If you want to work with me, ask me anything medical. The way that um, it works is you sign up, you pay an annual donation of $43 a year, and then you have access to cons- consultation, buy packages, join my collaborator program, etc. When you join, you will also be invited to a, uh, an, an up-and-coming um, Telegram, private Telegram group to share 
questions, answers, resources with other members of the association. So all of the details of that can be found at BelovedHolistics.com. And, um, oh, one last thing. If you haven't given me a five-star review on iTunes, please just go and do it. It takes five seconds. Just give that, pop that five stars there. Helps people find me because uh, it helps the show rise in rankings. And that really means a lot for whatever reason to the AI machines and bots out there that are spreading my work and, and allowing me to continue doing this. So that's all I have for you guys. I thank you so much for listening. Check out Charles's work. Get a copy of The Coronation, his new book, Essays from the COVID Moment. You won't regret it. It's phenomenal. And that's all I got today. I'll see you next time on the Holistic Obituary Podcast, everybody. Take care. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien. Alza la frente en alto. Alza la frente en alto y camina bien.